This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to my favorite murder, uh, the podcast. It's a true crime podcast. That's right. And I'm Georgia Hardstark. And I'm Karen Kilgara. How do you do? Very well. And you? <laughs> Fine. Thank you. Good. Do you ever get mad at Trade people? In. Do you ever get mad at people when they say to you, how are you? And I said, good, thanks. And then I say, how are you? And they say, I'm well, because they're like pointing out. <laughs> That you just said good, and so you immediately feel bad is that what, about yourself. Is that grammar passive aggression? It is. And it's oh, I never knew that. Well, I swear, it drives me crazy. I'm well. I would assume that someone who is posing as a as a, some sort of therapist mm-hmm. is what that sounds like to me, or yeah. some that sounds like someone who's like. I'm well. I was just at the farmer's market buying <laughs> fresh broccoli to steam. Uh-huh. And it's into organic. my pores. Do you eat organic? Do you eat organic yet? Do you eat organic? Do you eat Well, organic? no. <laughs> Cuz I'm unwell. <laughs> well, I'm fine without with not having organic. So Yeah. How about I'm just fine, barely getting by? <laughs> Do you How see these circles under my eye? Do they look like a well person's under I'm eye well. baggage? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. I'm well. I'm a Stepford wife. I'm well. I'm well. <laughs> we are well? T- that, that just makes me think of Banana Boy Scotty Landis, where she, he and I were talking about some people that were like, very successful and also had kids mm-hmm. and both of the husband and wife are famous in mm-hmm. some way and they're both rich or something like that and I go wow they really have it all and Scotty goes ew who wants it all <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's this thing where it's like that's what I always feel like in especially in Los Angeles is like I always want to tell those people with the tall new buck boots and the white sweater and the yeah. big weird hat yeah. and the bleach blonde hair. I know like, them. I, I don't I, I'm not competing with you. I'm not interested <laughs> in your life. I don't want what you have. Yeah. I understand that you believe yourself to be the pinnacle of, uh, you know, your yeah. yoga class and congrats <laughs> and avocado toast. Yes, you're doing all the things. You're checking all the boxes from the weird subscription box company that you signed up for. <laughs> God fucking bless. Get away from me. Have you seen the movie Ingrid Goes West? With no. um, it is there is a character in that, and it's what she is striving for. What's her name? She's so great. Steven, she plays April Aubrey Plaza. On her, Aubrey Plaza. And she's trying to to reach that character's lifestyle goals, hashtag lifestyle mm. goals, but she's just like us, so she can't and just screws yeah. it all up in all these like charming, not charming ways, like dark ways. <laughs> but that like the character they had 
play and all of it is so exactly but lives in a bungalow in Venice Beach with her hot bearded husband and their puppy and they have a lot of boho you know Joshua tree style life and everything they eat is perfect and cute yes. and it's and so she steals her dog to become friends with her it's like <laughs> it's very that so I highly recommend that sounds really good and it, relatable I really well, love also, that movie yeah it's a this town is and and I think maybe it's not even this town I think a lot of pop culture has become so drastically homogenized mm-hmm. in a way that is like, and I know this is because I'm never on Instagram. And so when I see little bits of Instagram yeah. pop through, yeah. it is, it's shocking to me how strange it, everyone is starting to look exactly the same yeah. and, and a little bit like sex dolls where it's like, sex dolls? so oh. it, everyone has, Equal size top and bottom lips, and they're <laughs> they're both giant, and they're the exact same size. Yeah, everyone has not a line, a wrinkle, or a mark on their face. Yeah, every single person has like half inch long eyelashes and gigantic eyebrows. The eyebrows, and not, not even like a wrinkle, yeah. not even an expression. <laughs> and everyone's kind of to the side. Uh huh. And and has a lot of contour. And there's a window in every on every wall in every room, letting in the most dappled, lovely sunshine. God bless God it all. Bless it all. It's a yeah. It's a fucking rat race to get somewhere that we don't even know what the point of it is. You yeah, because it's not real ultimately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't look. I I'm not saying beauty is bad. Obviously, everybody wants to feel good and look good, sure. and that's yeah. good. Yeah. Good. Make and broccoli. Ha- make yourself happy. Good for you. Sure. Good, good, good. But it's don't assume it's interesting just because it's yeah. what what you think people want. Here, let me brag real quick about how real I am. It reeks oh, shit. cat food in this room I'm in right now. That's how real. <laughs> and you can't what, you can't what put flavor? that there's no Instagram filter for that, baby. <laughs> That's all just like for it's all for me. You know what I mean? Like Is it hearty seafood platter is, or is it more of a chicken it dinner is supreme? Like fisherman's wharf on a hot day trash yes yeah it is that's what it is uh, hashtag what F- hashtag fisherman, fresh crab? fisherman's wharf <laughs> 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 like you see a seagull picking at an empty bread bowl that's got like the clam chowder <laughs> residue on it and then a tourist right behind it taking a picture exactly. of it then making the seagull's waist smaller and the <laughs> seagull's boobs bigger <laughs> and then there's no lines around the seagull's oh, eyes. Oh, where did he get those boots? Oh my god, did he have a rib removed? That seagull is so skinny. No, he's on a paleo diet. Um, I was going to say you lived in San Francisco in the 90s. No, correct 2000s, me if I'm wrong. 2000s. Oh, 2000s. Yeah. Shit. Then there's no way you remember this. What is it? Because there was a thing on Fisherman's Wharf, Pier 39. I, I used to go with my dad, so maybe I remember it. To Pier 39? To Fisherman's they, Wharf. Okay. Same. Same death. Yeah. Same area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but basically, Pier 39 was like the weird marionette doll store oh, that yeah. you're, my, my parents would be like, we're never buying you anything from that store, <laughs> so don't look at it. precious art pieces. There's no fucking yeah. way. Where they're like, you can pick one thing. And I'm like, I absolutely want the $400 marionette. My mother's like, what is wrong? Well, how how do you do it every time? But they used to have on Pier 39. I uh-huh. guess I'm thinking of this because of the seagull. We were yeah, talking. sure. A bag of bones seagull. <laughs> I was just thinking they had a thing there 
in the 80s, mm-hmm. then you could go in and sing along to your favorite like Whitney Houston hit and make a cassette tape of yourself singing a hit. So it was like yeah. individualized karaoke, one person karaoke to no one. But then you had a tape you could like. Was it a video? Car. Okay. No. Okay. Because that was is, that long ago. That's so only a cassette. <laughs> yeah, that would have cost five thousand dollars at the time. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that is awesome. But I, I feel like though they had those around in malls all over the country, and then eventually it became like because because these videos pop up of kids, yeah, doing that. That like that must have become the video you could get. And then like remember how they would have like Teen Magazine, and you and your sister had to sit in, and they take a photo <laughs> of it and show you on the cover of Teen Magazine. <laughs> Yes, it was like the the young girl's version of the time person of the year thing. Yes. But it's, instead, yes. it's like, I made it on cover 17. I feel like, like you getting that and those things are the rich girl equivalent, not to say we're rich, no offense, the rich girl equivalent <laughs> of having to get a caricature drawn of you on Fisherman's Wharf, which was just like <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. Are you ready for your low self-esteem beginnings? Yes. Here's right. how big your teeth are, Georgia. Yes. <laughs> Here's here's how like your head is like from mine, you know, they give you a tiny body. Yes. Like if you're like, I like to ride horses. It's a tiny body, a tiny body on a tiny horse. Yeah, but then you're accentuated whatever you hate about yourself. Yeah. So I already had a big face. So it's like they couldn't figure out what to do with me because it was like there was our, the caricature itself That's is a joke. gigantic head. That's the joke. <laughs> What do we, like, I don't know what to do with this girl. It looks exactly. She what are we going to make like this? We're going to make her eyes bluer. Like that's not going to hurt her feelings. How do we? How do we make this child hate herself for the rest of her life? That just made you feel they're better like, about well, yourself because you're like, wow, my eyes are like pools. Really and then are. she's like, so you're saying that's my real sized face? Yep. <laughs> yep. That's, but that's not a caricature. That was for a long time. Like what you wanted is that big head, lollipop head, skinny body. You know. And it was <laughs> you're above lollipop head, skinny body, tiny horse, <laughs> Golden Gate Bridge in the back, little cowboy hat. <laughs> like what? Hashtag. This is that was the original Instagram for characters from Pure Thirty Nine. Can everyone please post their caricature <gasps> drawings oh or their t- cover of Teen Magazine um, photos from when they were kids? From I the have tourist one. trap. Oh yes, my god. The I was a cowgirl. I have one as me as a fucking cowgirl. I swear nice. to God. It's from Knott's Berry Farm. Oh my Farm. God. Do you have one? Is it? Yes. I have one at the group of friends oh who my God. all decided one day we were going to go to Pier 39. And you know who's in it? Legendary Holly Gardner. Tampon suitcase story. <laughs> who's, who I have to say suffered greatly in yes. the t- retelling of the tampon suitcase story. Good. Was my best friend from sixth grade through high school. So like, yeah, she you wouldn't really have told it if you, and said her full name if you had really hated her. Yes, exactly. Maybe. No, no, no. That was just a bad moment in our relationship. But um, <laughs> but she's in that, you know, the all stars of like seventh grade, yeah. essentially. And and what it is, is one of those old fashioned cowboy pictures that's supposed to be like a tintype. Right. And we're all, all dressed up in costumes. Right. OK, so here's what we're going to do. Steven, there's no way you don't have a caricature of yourself from a, as your kid. As a dinosaur. Yes, you at Jurassic Park. Exactly. You're riding a tiny I do dinosaur. Have that. Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. The three of us are going to post it Wait, on our sorry. Instagram. Can Hold I on. just retell? Hold on. Yeah. Stevens, as George is saying, we know you have one. Stevens looking. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's almost like he was in like a pantomime of a confused guy. And the second I said Jurassic Park, <laughs> he snapped right into it. Oh. which just like, oh, yeah, I have one of those. Well, because my sister and I have one of us doing it. And then we recreated it. 
as adults like a few years ago. Nice. Yeah. Is it a character or is it um, like it's a post? Us, like, in, you know, a green screen being like chased ah. by a dinosaur. So we recreated that moment. Because he's younger Children than us. adults. Yeah. Got it. Like yeah. we have the middle beginning and hopefully end of what they put, what we were able to do as children. Yes. Complete. Yes. We, we span three generations. <laughs> this is our family. I think I was too scared to get a, a real caricature though. You were, Steven, you were too scared to find out what your uh, one major feature is <laughs> on your face. Flies, that... Yeah. I think I yeah. was too scared. So like at Knott's Berry sure. Farm, Georgia, I never, I never oh. did that. Yeah, he was he was easy on me because I think I was like four. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then please tag. Let's do MFM caricature hashtag because we have the whole thing. Point of this is to get our own hashtag. Right. That's what you wanted, Karen. (laughs) Now you're speaking a language like uh, on Twitter. Hashtags are straight up for nerds that never use Twitter. Not not Instagram. I know. Instagram is a completely different language. Right, so well, you have to call this. Just tag us. You, just tag us. MFM caricature is good. Okay. No, I mean, we'll, those we'll are the ones them. we want big head, little, but bo- I want big head, little body. Okay. You're looking for a potentially fake magazine cover. No, I don't Just so funny. I'd like, love to see that. Whatever the like the play area art. We've spent too much time on this. Just post it and tag us. <laughs> Disagree. I think we could de- dig deeper on this. Okay. Also, it makes me think of this too, because it's like, just to not to argue with you, first that we were definitely middle middle class, but my mother would always do this thing where like if we walk by the caricature person, she go, you don't want that, don't want that. It's, it's not worth it. Pick something. That's a pick good something trick. Up. She would always like out outside of her mouth, basically be like, you know, you don't want Trash that. Trash You're gonna like it. You like it now. You won't like it by the time She's you get home. Smart lady, and she knows she really like, how to work with people. I feel like to like make them think that they're making their own decision. Yeah. Right? That's- you mean uh, manipulate children? <laughs> yes. I do. Parenting 101. Give them two <laughs> options. Make one of them shitty. Make the other one the one you want them to do. Yeah. And then you get whatever you want. Do you want a nap That's- or do you want to help mommy with laundry? That's also head writing. If anybody <laughs> w- wants to take my class. That's that's the first one. Wow. <clears throat> That's good yep. stuff. Uh, what the um, fuck were we t- How did we get on? What did... We were talking about how things are superficial and social oh. media. <laughs> oh, yeah. Speaking of social media, I have a correction because social Great. media told us. Perfect. It's a, it's a, you know, another clarification because last week I talked about the book I'm reading, the Icelandic. We, we, we guessed Norwegian. It's called I Remember You by Irsa Sirgador Dotter. Remember? Yes. And we guessed all sorts of places where this book must be from. None of them were right, because Deborah Taylor, 1654 on Instagram, said, Yersa is from Iceland. You can tell if someone is Scandinavian slash Nordic if their last name has something at the end that resembles son or daughter, like Duter. Oh, my God. Good to know. Scandinavia is... Then she goes on to give us a report. Scandinavia is geographically considered Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Culturally, Finland and Iceland are included. Generally, all five and their territories like Greenland and the Faroe Islands are considered Nordic countries. Maybe you can hit Reykjavik on your next tour and invite her to the show. Love you both. So so your author lives in Reykjavik? Yes. In Iceland. Reykjavik, by the way, is the capital of Iceland. Well, I should have known that then. <laughs> now we well, all know. Here's here's why I know. In sixth grade, we had to do reports on countries <laughs> of the world. Right. I'll tell this story again, even though it's not really a story. I love it. 
And I got picked second to last. And the only so if you your name got picked out of a jar and you got to go up and he, there goes Matt Brocco, he picks Italy. Uh-huh. Italy's gone. Uh-huh. Everyone oh, all the people with Italian grandparents. Oh uh-huh. in in two more swipes, Ireland's gone. What? Come on. <laughs> then it goes all the way down through the 40 or 60 kids oh. in my class. I can't remember however many. Then it's me. I pick Iceland. Last guess who was last? Holly Gardner. No. And she, and she got Malta. Literally, wow. this was pre-internet, pre-everything. This is encyclopedia. We were like, There's two lines about Malta. I fucking literally it. The librarian couldn't help us. She was like, nobody knows these countries. <laughs> nobody wants to hear about them. Who's your teacher? What the fuck? <laughs> what's, he, what's Mr. Gilardi doing over there? <laughs> so... I end up digging up as much as I can find out and become quite interested in Iceland yeah. because I was like, wait a second. Greenland's the one that right. covered in ice. Mom, and why Iceland have we actually moved to Iceland. I did a full report. I became a true fan of Iceland. Cool. And then 25 years later, Iceland is all the rage. And I'm just like, I will tell you about Reykjavik okay. and not vice versa. Okay. Well, so I remember you is a good Icelandic book. It's part of it takes place in Reykjavik. It's fucking creepy as shit. I highly recommend it. I'm, I'm going to look up because that sounds familiar. I feel like there might be. I bet I there's a movie. This... Yes. Because it's I'm very it like up. as I'm reading it, I'm like, I can picture the movie. Yeah, in my head. Daughter, there's a little boy, ghost boy, Gustafsson, <laughs> Gustaf's daughter. Your your daughter. Your daughter. Let's go there one day for tour. Hell yes. What do you have? What are you doing? I have the a uh, following. Oh <laughs> oh shit, dude. <laughs> and I repeat, and I declare. Uh, I have started the podcast. Which now this is weird, and maybe you can explain this to me. Georgia Ann. Okay. Um, <laughs> the podcast is called West Cork. Oh, right. It's a true crime, legendary true crime podcast that I've heard about for yes. so long. Only recently became available on iTunes podcast because it was Audible original that I recommended three years ago. <laughs> Easily. Easily. That it is so I can't believe you haven't. It's one of those ones that everyone's like, but Karen, you'll really like it. And you're like, but no, then no. <laughs> and then but Karen, I think you'll really, no, no, no. And then three years me. later, you go, do you know what I found? I found you know what I well, you know what you need to hear about. Um, <laughs> I, I excellent. Knew. It's excellent. Uh, it's one of those angering ones because it's a cold case still. I don't know if anything's come out of it since it came out, but it takes place in Ireland, West Cork, yep. Ireland. Yep. Beautifully done podcast. It's just it is, a classic, wonderful true crime podcast. I didn't know you couldn't listen unless you had Audible. So that's awesome. Yeah, it just came. It just became it, we just went wide. And then I was like, God, I know this, though. How do I know this? And I'm listening to it. And obviously, what what's the one place I would go to yeah. if I'm like, how would who would have told me? Who would have told me about this podcast? <laughs> and truly, I was just like, for some reason, uh well, it's because it was three years ago, which yeah. means it was 100 years ago yeah. in my brain. But we but also, also get tagged in a lot of them. Like, you have to listen to this. And you're like, OK. Uh, I know. And friends <laughs> tell us at this point, it's like it's it's going to be from one or either us to each other or a bunch of other people. So or, or literally thousands of other people <laughs> who know our taste very well. But I will say this. What a listen, even separate from if you're interested, not interested in true crime mm-hmm. or just a basic story. This almost goes beyond a lot of that. There's like a kind of like small town psychology element to it. Mm-hmm. And it is a true 
like just a quilt of all the different Irish accents. Yeah. There's a guy in there. There's an Irish detective who I kept thinking was from France because his accent would go into this. Ugh, like she's this, from, but she's French. She's French. This detective the, okay. is oh. from I believe they said he was from Galway or something. Uh I can't remember, but his accent was unlike anything I've ever heard Irish style, but it like would go into these other places and then come back around. And you're just like, this is how this brogue turns into all these things. And this is in all different areas. This isn't narrative. This is like real people because it's true crime. So, (laughs) yeah, that's good. I'm excited for you. That's a great one. It's I'm just almost done. I'm on the last like last half of the last episode. But I do that thing where I can't I can't stop. Tell you what, if there's been any updates since it came out, because I haven't oh, okay. followed along. I will. Nice. Uh, but the, I did want to read you one quote, which you may or may not remember. Okay. But there's a, a witness who was old who testified to seeing something or, you know, yeah. whatever, some some story. And uh, but he was old. So they were trying to act like he shouldn't have testified. Because mm. <laughs> telling me I need to be in a home for the bewildered, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's his way of saying that they didn't trust his testimony oh, oh, and he was like oh, mad about it tell me i need to be at a home for the bewildered oh my god do they have those just if you're generally bewildered you get to go stay in a hospital for a while you, like see someone stupid doing a dumb thing and you're like i don't even understand why you would try that and he was like let's go home let's go to your bewildered be- yeah, bewildered. You're too bewildered to be out in the world yeah. right now. Yeah, we'll be in a home for the bewildered. Can we call this episode um, a home for the bewildered, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my most um, prominent. I just love when there's a good podcast mm-hmm. that I get up and like do the dishes yeah. with and get get my stuff done. It's like you finally have someone supporting you and <laughs> the things you want to do <laughs> and the bullshit shit you want to do, not the work. It's like yep. yes. Finally, someone wants me to do the dishes and fold my laundry and like go for a walk. Yeah. Just go kind of sit and stare. Well, yeah. if that's what you want for me, West Cork, you know best because <laughs> you love me the most. That's right. And I trust you. Uh, <laughs> can I plug? Can I plug something about me? I wish you would. OK, great. I was on a podcast and I'm really I was really nervous about it. And I'm really happy with the way it turned out and proud of myself for it because it was like kind okay. of some hard um, topics that I hadn't really shared before. Um, so it's this podcast called Turned Out a Punk that I'm a big fan of. And it's a guy, Damien, who was in this band Fucked Up. And he interviews people at, who are in were in and are in and have been in the punk scene and how they got into it and there's mm-hmm. been all kinds of great, you know, Fred Armisen, uh, Bill Hader, a lot of comedians and then a lot of like, you know, musicians like the Go-Go's and old punks. And it's just really cool. And I w- wanted to be on it because I love punk. And so I was on it and I'm I'm really happy with it. So check out my episode of Turned Out a Punk. It's episode 321. Turned out punk? Turned out a punk. Turned out a punk. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Um... Oh, Nora went back to school. Nora's back. She's back in class. What grade is she in now? Eighth. Ah! is growing up. But also like just in time. It just makes me happy because it was really 
for someone who loves school so much. Yeah. And well, also, I just can't imagine that in eighth grade, like right when things are starting to get interesting mm. and kind of fun or whatever, you're getting your footing. Yeah. You just have to go sit home, sit on the computer for God, a year. Gone crazy. I wonder if it's like if it's kind of got them out of some trouble they would have been in or means that now they're going to get in more tr- trouble to make up for the past trouble they would have gotten into. I say probably more trouble. Yeah. Although, did I tell you when um, I, uh, Laura told me she was going back, I texted Nora and said, I hope you're still popular. Do you think you're going to be pop? <laughs> what if you're not popular anymore? Did I tell you that no, already? No, you didn't and tell me she, that. That's so just, funny. She sent all the laughing, like <laughs> crying emojis going, I hope so. <laughs> Do you think it's like, it's like, you know how you measure how much you've grown on the wall? Do you think when they all left school before uh, right when COVID hit, they all measured their popularity on the wall <laughs> and they have to go back and stand up against the wall again and be like, oh, shit, Nora, you're still at the same popularity level. But but Lisa Nora. with two L's over here is popular than she used skyrocketed. To. So, so over the past sorry, year, Nora, give her your crown. You have to give her your crown. It's so confusing at this age. But yeah, I guess people just don't like you in real life. Like you're great <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> It's your n- worst nightmare is you're only good on Zoom. Ooh. Can you imagine if you adjusted so well to the pandemic that then you really, uh, as opposed to all the people that are just hate being on Zoom and the timing's yeah. so off and shitty, you're just like, I've come alive on Zoom. Yeah. People f- finally care about me. Don't make me go back to, to standing on two <laughs> legs and having to wear pants in front of people and not being surrounded by the stench of cat food. I can't. I am at my best when I'm surrounded by the stench of cat food and no one knows it. That's when I'm at my best. I just need two snoring dogs <laughs> near me to really podcast. What if way. I started? I know I love your dogs. They're out. What if, you see what if I started wearing um, uh, like a cardboard piece of cardboard behind me that has this wallpaper on it just so I always have because I need this background now this pink like, floral like a backpack with a, with with a, a piece big of pink floral pa- wallpapered cardboard background yeah just so everyone yeah. knows how good I look yeah with this I'm gonna start carrying around books like I'm in the eighth grade and then just be like oh these are my books from my bookshelf from my zoom remember how when like, I was trying to seem smart like a belt a le- old leather belt around the books <laughs> lollipop lollipop you know when they walk to school like that <laughs> what was that all about oh did you hear the great author beverly cleary died yeah man R.I.P. what a legend what she a legend. really she wrote amazing books she wrote a ton of great books boys like those books girls like those books yeah young old yeah everybody read them to your kids get them into it god it's so good ramona quimby there's one that starts out, Ramona is so upset because her and Beezus went to the playground and some kid kept saying Jesus Beezus to Beezus. Uh-huh. And Ramona was out of her mind angry. <laughs> and I was like, I just remember reading it and being like, get, get, let's get into this, Ramona. <laughs> what happened to you? Tell me your story. Yes. I mean, like, it's such good writing for yeah. kids. It's it's saying what happens to you matters and like is a story worthy and a yeah. big deal. Yeah. So good. You don't have to like waltzing through a wardrobe to get your story written, everyone. <laughs> you oh. don't need a big, weird Christian lion telling your no. story. You don't need a giant peach. You don't need no. insects to be your friend, although it's very helpful. Ooh. I also I loved the idea of being on a giant peach <sighs> that you could like lay on and then just take a bite of if you wanted. Oh my god. That was my favorite. I read that book so many times when I was a kid. 
We read that book. Also, did you have the copy of James and the Giant Peach that had the original illustrations? And when they first show James, he is so scary looking, like his little <laughs> eyes are so dark. I don't remember and he's that. all like, you know, because his parents were yeah. his parents were killed by escaped animals from the zoo. Yeah, a hippopotamus. And so he it? had to go live with Aunt Spiker and Aunt Fun. It was Bunch. the saddest book <laughs> ever. So tragic. It's so tragic and horrible. They're so mean to him. I know. Jesus, we were no wonder we're the way we are. I know for real. It's, it's all real doll's fault. Should we do exactly right news? Yeah, I don't think there's much exactly right news Not this week, ton. right? Just some highlights of good stuff that's happening on shows. That's right. Uh, well, really exciting. I'm sure you heard the trailer that Tenfold More Wicked's season three kicks off this week. It's called Woo! Murder in the Court, and it covers a historical true crime story about a fractured family in Texas. So check that out. It's so good. It's so Such great. a good series. It's such a good podcast. We love it. We're so proud of Kate Winkler Dawson and all her amazing writing talent and her right. amazing podcasting talent. She really is making just a hit. Yeah. I mean, people really love this show. There's such good feedback on it. She's just she's amazing. We're, yeah, she, we're thrilled to is. work with her. There's more COVID-19 information on this podcast. We'll kill you this week. It's, so go check out what Aaron and Aaron have to tell you. There's just um, it's a bonus episode. So much good stuff. Uh, and I saw what you did. Millie and Danielle watch and discuss the amazing films with uh, the incredible Pam Greer, including Jackie Brown and Coffee. I mean, those are freaking classics. This woman is a legend. And yeah. Millie and Danielle are the people to tell you about it. They break it down. Yeah. All right. Should we get into this? Oh, yeah. Also, Pop Sockets in the merch <laughs> in the merch store. MyFavoriteMurder.com store. Pop Sockets. We have lots of them. Goodbye. Pop Sockets. Get into it. Get into it. Pop it. Pop it and lock it. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like 
perfectly scrambled eggs. Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient made in cookware. Made in was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Maiden. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of made in products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad. So it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made-in, made-in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. So the story I'm doing this week was recommended by a listener whose Twitter handle is, or her Twitter name is Sweetly Sarcastic. She's at hmm. Sweetly Sarcast. She sent me a tweet that said, uh, it said, read this on medium.com, immediately thought of you, twists, turns, psychological drama, highly recommend, and a damn good My Favorite Murder Story too. XO. Then she put the link and then she put no offense, hashtag true crime, uh, which made me laugh. <laughs> See, there it's used. Love it. I think it's being sweetly sarcastic. Got it. Um, so the attached was a link to this article on medium.com written by uh, Corey Mead called The Poet. And it be, it tells a tale mm -hmm. of this story out of Wichita in the late 70s that I have never heard Mm. even an inkling of. Um, so the majority of what I'm about to tell you is a retelling of Corey Mead's article from medium.com okay. called The Poet. Uh, so Wichita, I highly recommend. Is Wichita spooky or is it just me? Well, you know, you're think you're about to find out why you think that's okay. true. Or do you want me to just say it right now? No, go. Okay. No spoilers. Well, it's about to happen. Uh, there's there's other information um, we got was from medium dot uh, medium dot com article by a writer named K.M. Brown called Trauma Stole These Women's Lives, mm -hmm. as well as a 1988 People magazine article by a writer named Gene Stone. Um, also an article from the Wichita Eagle by Jason Tidd and uh, Legacy.com, information from Legacy.com, and also uh, facts from a book called Nightmare in Wichita, mm. The Hunt for the BTK Killer. <gasps> That's what you're thinking of. Of course. Yes. So... We go, I take you now, to Wichita, Kansas, November 21st, 1978. So 48-year-old Ruth Finley, who's a secretary for the head of security at Southwestern Bell Telephone Company, she's out running errands on her lunch break in downtown Wichita. Um, and she's leaving a greeting card shop on North Market Street when a blue-green 1964 Chevy Bel Air pulls up, cuts off her path, and a man jumps out. He's wearing black frame glasses and a jean jacket over his sweater. Hmm. No, he's not a hipster. It's 1978. 
He doesn't isn't about to ask her about animal <laughs> seeing animal collective live or if she has an extra cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ruth immediately panics because she's seen this man before. This is actually the third time this stranger has approached her. Each encounter being a little bit scarier than the last. So at, at this moment, he jumps out of the car. Ruth looks around. All she can see is an old lady like way up the street. Mm-hmm. So she knows she's alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so before she can do anything, she's kind of in shock. He kicks her in the shin really hard, then yells, have you got my money? She doubles over in pain. And as she does, the man shoves her into the backseat of the car, slides in next to her. And then a man who her attacker calls Buddy, uh-huh. um, who's sitting behind the wheel, drinking from a paper bag wrapped bottle, um, he basically takes off when the attacker shuts the door. Okay. So Ruth immediately slides over and tries to get out the other back back seat uh, door, but it's the handle's gone. She looks around. She notices the upholstery in this car is torn up. The, the floorboards littered with junk. There's um, chains, there's rags, there's a, a, an old gas can, there's pieces of concrete. And she also sees the dashboard is held together with um, masking tape. So um, the man, her attacker starts going through her purse. He pulls out, a $350 paycheck, a $100 savings bond, and her safety deposit key. He says, we've struck it rich. Um, But then he finds the business card of a police officer and he um, starts screaming, you damn stupid bitch at her. And he picks up one of the pieces of concrete on the floor, hits her in the head with it and knocks her out. So she's fading in and out of consciousness, but she later remembers snippets of the men's conversation. At one point, they're at the Twin Lakes shopping center. She hears the driver complain about the shoddy job that Sears did on fixing his car. Mm. Um, At another point, she hears them say, we'll get rid of her, but not here. Um, It's then that she remembers she's got a can of mace in her purse because Mm -hmm. the other two times she ran into this guy, it scared her so badly that she has mace in her purse, but she's too afraid to move or do anything um, at the moment. They end up driving around for hours. And so finally Ruth says, you have to let me out. I have to go to the bathroom. They both laugh at her. And then she basically says, I'm going to throw up if I don't go to the restroom. And she starts gagging. So they say, okay, hold on a second. And they pull into a park. So, At this point now, it's cold and dark out because it's November. Um, So they make Ruth take off her sweater and her shoes so that she won't run anywhere or try to get away. And um, her abductor, you know, the guy that who jumped out at her on the street, he walks her into the park and he's saying stuff like, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll watch you and you watch me. Um, Uh And then he unzips his pants to start peeing. He says, I'll go first. And she grabs her can of mace and sprays him with it because they let her take her purse for some reason. Yes. Um, So then she runs. She she runs up. She sees a bush. She kind of runs away, hides in the bush. The guy's walking around going, "Um, you can't get away. You'll freeze out here. Just come out. We'll be nice to you. You know, whatever. But she stays hidden um her feet start going numb from how cold it is she waits she waits until it all goes quiet and then she runs up to a higher vantage point and when she doesn't see the car the bel-air um she sees that basically they've left so she goes she runs out of the park and she runs across the street to a liquor store and has the store owner call the police and then call her husband ed amazing so 
Now, her husband, Ed, hasn't heard from her all evening, so he's already filed a missing persons report with the police. So um, the liquor store store owner calls Ed, says who he is, says Ruth is safe. Ed rushes to, rushes to the store. But by the time he gets there, um, uh, his wife's already been taken to the police station. So Ed, when he finally sees Ruth, she's shaken, but she's grateful to be alive. Amazing. Um Unfortunately, this isn't the first time she's experienced a brutal attack and it wouldn't be the last. What? So Ruth Finley, her maiden name is Ruth Smock. She's born on February 1st, 1930 in rural Missouri. She's one of three children. Her father's a farmer. Her mother's a homemaker. She has a normal upbringing by Depression era standards. So yeah. they had enough money to live, but they didn't have any extra like most families. Yeah. Her parents were pretty strict um, and they were very stoic. Um, and, you know, none of the kids are really uh, they were all encouraged to keep their emotions to themselves. Sure. Um, so when Ruth is 15, she moves out on her own to a boarding house in nearby Fort Scott, Missouri, to take sewing and typing classes. And a year later, she gets a job working for the local phone company. Um and then on the night of October 14th, 1946, when Ruth is 16 years old, she comes home from the grocery store and is startled by the sound of the screen door opening behind her. Mm. Um, and she turns to look and sees a roughly 50 year old white male intruder who grabs her, starts pulling at her clothes. She fights back against him. She presses her thumbs into his eyes, yeah. but the man overpowers her. He has a chlorof chloroform on a rag that he holds over her mouth. Mm. And as she's passing out, she sees him heating a flat iron over the stove. <laughs> she wakes up later with scratches on her face, arms and legs, and both of her thighs branded with first and second degree burns. Oh, my God. But her clothes are intact and investigators find no evidence of sexual assault. Um, and it's unclear if that assailant was ever caught. Mm -hmm. But so um, she goes on to marry when she's 20 years old, June 1st, 1950. And um, she marries her, her husband, Ed Finley, who's an accountant for a construction firm. They settle into a one story house in a quiet neighborhood in Wichita, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Ruth gets a job um, as a secretary um, for the head of security at the Southwestern bell telephone company and in their free time ed likes to paint landscapes and ruth makes ceramics they have two sons and they basically live a quiet fairly normal life mm -hmm. um she's described as soft-spoken sober and um they're just an average middle-class couple so so basically all of this starts on a day in june in 1977 so basically at this point, Ed is 50 years old. He's working in there in the backyard when he suddenly collapses. Um, so he's rushed to the hospital. Everybody thinks it's a heart attack, um, but they have he has to spend the night in the hospital to get his diagnosis of what's actually going on. So with both of their um, sons grown and out of the house, Ruth, now 48 years old, is left to spend the night al alone in her house for the first time in 30 years. And this is after the attack, right? No, no. Now we're this is before. So okay. this is this. This is how everything started. Oh, OK. Got it. Got it. Is this night, June in 1977. OK. So she turns on the radio to distract herself. But all of the news on the radio is about Wichita's first serial killer, 
the BTK killer and the seven victims he had so far murdered. Oh, no. So, yeah, he had been he had been, um, you know, obviously going undetected. There's basically had a serial killer loose in Wichita and no one knew who he was. And it was just it just he had killed seven people at that oh my point. God. So that's her first night home alone. Dude. Um, Dude. So she has to turn it to a different station to distract herself. Um, and then a little later that night, the phone rings. So Ruth is afraid it might be the hospital saying something bad about Ed. Mm-hmm. When she answers, instead, she hears the voice of a strange man who says, is this Ruth Smock from Fort Scott, Kansas? And she is surprised to hear her maiden name yeah. and to hear her old hometown. She says, yes. And he says, I know all about that night. And he then reads the article from an October 1946 issue of the Kansas newspaper, the Fort Scott Tribune, all about Ruth's horrifying attack. Oh, my God. Um, So the man on the other end, he reads the whole article to her. Then he asks if Ruth still got her brand. She says, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but he says that he was a construction worker who found this article about Ruth in the wall of a house he was demolishing. He says he's going to blackmail her and threaten to revive the story and tell everyone she knows unless she pays him. She hangs up the phone. She gets a terrible headache. She goes to sleep and then she sleeps for 10 hours. What the fuck? So she wakes up the next morning. Um, the, she gets the call from the hospital to say Ed didn't have a heart attack. The collapse was from an, um, a car accident injury that had happened a year before. Mm-hmm. He has to stay in the hospital um, another week for observation, mm. which means that Ruth is alone in the house for another week. No. Um, and she's fearing another ominous phone call from this man, but none come. Uh, when Ed's released and back at home, Ruth decides not to bother him with the story of that call yeah. and just decides to put the whole thing behind her. But then later that summer, she's at work when an envelope appears on her desk with her name on it. She opens it up to find that same newspaper article that the man had read mm. on the phone to her. So she rips it up and throws it in the trash. And then the calls start again. Um, Ruth keeps him a secret from Ed. Um, So when she answers the phone and hears the man's voice, she immediately hangs up. And sometimes Ed will answer, but he basically the caller just hangs up on Ed. So then in August of 1977, um, she's window shopping in downtown Wichita and she notices a man that's they're on a crowded sidewalk. And but suddenly there's a man walking alongside her. And then he says, you've done such a good job working this week. You can take the weekend off. And she's kind of freaked out, but she stays calm. She looks at him, estimates he's in his late 40s. He's 5'9". He's skinny. He's wearing a plaid sports shirt and jeans, white canvas shoes, and he has black hair graying at the temples. Mm. Um, So she kind of takes a picture of him with her mind, but she ignores him, basically. And she just she just keeps walking. But he keeps talking to her and he says, you work for the phone company, don't you? What do you do there? Are you an operator? Then he tells her that he wanted big, big one big at gambling and asked, do you want to go to Vegas sometimes? So she's just keep, she's still ignoring him. Um, And finally she says, I'm waiting for my husband and his tone changes. And he says, are you still married? I like your face. I'm going to see you again. You can count on that. Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. So he disappears and then like into the crowd. And then Ed uh, finally arrives. And so she tells him everything that's going on. 
or that's just gone on. Yeah. He says, oh, he's just trying to flirt with you. It's fine. <laughs> Ed. Ed. So a year goes by. Um, she still gets the occasional phone call, but but she just hangs up and she doesn't see the man in person again until a year later in June of 1978 when she's p- walking by an alleyway in downtown Wichita when a hand reaches out and grabs her wrist no. and she hears a man yell, Ruth, get back here, you stupid bitch and talk to me. But she manages to get away from him and she runs into the Macy's across the street. She finally gets to the fifth floor of the Macy's. She realizes where she is. And she's that she's basically like blacked out from fear. So she calls Ed. He comes and meets her at the Macy's and she tells him about that incident and about the man that talked to her the year before and finally tells him about all the threatening phone calls and all the stuff that happened. So they um, Ed actually files a police report, but nothing comes of it. So then four months later, in October of 1978, Ruth gets another mysterious letter, and this one is sent to her home. And it's written in the same messy scrawl that the other ones are written in. And this one reads, fuck you, fuck the police, fuck the telephone company. Oh, shit. Right? Which is, I mean, that's how we all feel. (laughs) So a month later, (laughs) the telephone company. Remember the telephone company? Yeah, Ma Bell. (laughs) I remember Ma Bell. Ma Bell, oh, it used to be these rates. <laughs> oh, these rates. Okay. Basically, a month later, Ed and Ruth go to the police and they talk to a Lieutenant Bernie Drowatsky, who's a 34 year veteran criminal investigator. And he is, all his time is being taken up by this BTK case. I'm sure. Right? Yeah. So he's listening to this nice couple. And in his mind, he's like, yeah, I just don't have time for this yeah. bullshit, basically. Um, and, but now, the Ruth's, Ruth's got another letter where the man is now demanding a hundred dollars. Um, and he ends the letter like this very threatening letter with a poem. And it says, wherever you go on water or land, you still got to pay or I tell about your brand. I am smart and know things to do. You talk to people I despise like police, lieutenant and telespies. Um, like filled with misspellings and weird mm-hmm. spellings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the beginning of this onslaught of letters. She just keeps getting them, each one stranger than the next. They're all they all have spelling errors. Sometimes uh, he uses really big, un- like uncommon or like uh, you know, fancy vocabulary words. Um, and then sometimes he makes up words like sanchused or <laughs> psychosthenia. <laughs> he's he's always he always refers to Ruth's branding scars. Ugh. So the lieutenant takes these letters to to the lab for fingerprint testing. They don't find anything. Um, we're still getting the phone calls at home. Um, so it doesn't really seem like the calls stop. Ruth and Ed hope that the stalker's finally letting up. But then later that month is when Ruth is abducted by the two men in the Bel Air. So that brings us up to November of that first thing that happened. So, okay, so now that Ruth has been abducted, suddenly Lieutenant Drowatsky is taking this case seriously because it's starting to match up with the BTK MO, the weird letters, and then the actual physical violence. Like, they're very worried that this is some, um, that it could be, it could be BTK in some other weird form. Right. They, they don't know. Or a copycat or they don't know what it is. Yeah. So 
Um, the day after her abduction, Drowatsky's colleague, Detective Richard Zortman, goes back to the park where Ruth escaped and finds her sweater, shoes and footprints leading from the parking lot to that hiding spot in the bushes. Uh-huh. But he doesn't find anything else. So. Um, They also run a check on all 1964 Chevy Bel Air owners in the area. None of them turn out to be suitable suspects for this abduction. So for five weeks, several officers are assigned to keep watch over Ruth as she takes her lunch breaks downtown. But nothing happens in that time. Another detective named Detective George Anderson takes Ruth and Ed to Fort Scott to dive back in to her attack from when she was 16 to see if he can find any leads connecting that to her, this current stalker. Yeah. They end up spending two days re-examining the old case and she actually reviews a number of mugshots the Fort Scott police have on file but nothing comes of it Mm. Um, Detective Anderson even goes back for a second two-day trip on his own to look into it more but he doesn't find anything meanwhile Ruth can't sleep she has bad headaches she's getting stomach cramps on a daily basis Um, and Ed is spending his nights hidden in the bushes of their backyard armed with a 12 gauge shotgun hoping to catch this stalker approaching the house which I'm sure makes her feel extra safe that her husband's like that's terrifying I know I know they're but they're freaking out and that this is their own mini personal family freak out on top of the wider city Jesus freak out sure uh then on december 13th 1978 lieutenant drawatsky receives a letter of his own ruth stalker is accusing him of quote protecting a whore from death the lieutenant's furious he now knows ruth and ed from this case he believes ruth to be a kind good woman and now he wants to catch the stalker even now more than ever so the letters keep coming each one with its own dark, threatening, error-riddled error poem. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Ed starts referring to the stalker as the poet, and the name actually ends up sticking. Um, then on January 25th, 1979, the poet calls Ruth at work. He tells her that he has a quote-unquote surprise for her in the lobby <gasps> down in a telephone company building. Um, so she's, you know, cautiously walks downstairs, and there in the lobby phone booth, she finds a knife wrapped in a red bandana. She calls the police. They start questioning everyone that's been in the lobby and in the building. A few witnesses come forward and say that they saw a man resembling Ruth's description of the poet. Um, They saw him near the phone booth, but no one really has any information of who he is or where he went. So no leads are taken from it. A month later, the poet starts sending letters to local businesses. He sends a local florist a letter with $5 enclosed and their request to send Ruth one black rose. Really? The note reads, quote, if this is not enough ENUF for a delivered one, then call. And then it has Ed and Ruth's phone number oh. and tell her to come and get it. Yikes. So as things get warmer, the letters and the calls start to slow down. So Ed and Ruth decide to take advantage and plan a vacation to, to Colorado in July of 1979. Um, so to get ready for that, Ruth tells Ed she's going to go to the mall by herself to get a pair of jeans. And now Ed doesn't like that she's going alone, but she says it's just going to be fine. I'm just running in really quickly. So on August 13th, um, Ruth leaves work. She goes to Dillard's department store at the Town East Mall in downtown Wichita, gets some jeans. By the time she's done, she goes outside to find herself walking through a, 
a practically empty parking lot alone at dusk. No, has anything good ever happened in a mall parking lot? No, not at all, especially it, t- toward the end of the day. No. And then, it's b- no. worse and worse yeah. just as the sun goes down. That's right. Um, but this was, you know, is 79. So malls were new for people. True. Um, so before she gets to her car, she he- hears a familiar voice yell, hey, oh. Ruth, I didn't think you're going to make it this easy. She spins around, sees the poet lunging toward her. She tries unlocking her car door, but she can't get it in time. He grabs her. He shoves her against the car. He tells her to get in as he tosses a bag filled with rope, white tape, a red bandana, and half a drunken bottle of wine into the back seat. He tells her he's going to take her to a a remote bridge near August Airport Road. But right When that happens, she breaks away from his grasp. She manages to get into the car through the passenger side door and um, close up behind her. The window is slightly cracked. The poet tries to reach in after her, but she rolls it up. She forces him to pull his hand away and pinches a brown glove into the window as she peels out of the parking lot. Ruth, this woman is a freaking hero. She gets away again at the next red light. She looks down and realizes she feels a little lightheaded. She looks down. She's been stabbed. (gasps) An eight-inch boning knife is sticking out of her left side, of the left side of her torso. Holy shit. Right? So she'll later learn at the hospital this is actually the third stab wound that she got. There's two more in her back that she didn't even feel. Oh, my God. So she... She drives herself to a gas station phone booth and there she dials the number that she's memorized, 268-4181, which is Lieutenant Drowatsky's boss, Captain Al Fimich. This is his direct line. Uh-huh. And before Ruth can finish introducing herself, he picks up. She's like, hi, my name is Ruth, whatever. And he's like, I know who you are. What's going on? And then she explains it to him. So he sends an officer to where she is. But she's so worried that the poet's going to find her there that she drives home, which is only five minutes away. Captain Thimich has already called Ed and basically said what's going on. So by the time she gets home, Ed's waiting for her on the porch. As soon as she gets there, he gets in, drives her to the hospital. The police meet the couple at the hospital. So Ruth's all of her wounds are treated. The doctors say that the third stab wound in, in her left side was so deep. Had it gone in any further, she would have died. Mm-hmm. Um, she stays in the hospital for nine days. Her story makes the news once again. And the re- the reporter covering the story for the Wichita Eagle Beacon newspaper is named Fred Mann. He reports the incident. And then in a follow up article, he includes the police sketch of the poet. And for that, he begins to get threatening letters from the poet. So the day after Ruth gets out of the hospital, one of the nurses tells the police that a man who resembles the police sketch of the poet visited the nurse's station several times while Ruth was in their care. Mm. Um, so as a precaution, Lieutenant Drowatsky stays at Ruth and Ed's house for two days just to make sure they're OK. Mm. Nothing happens while he's there. So. Um, By September of 1979, the police have no leads and Ed is growing desperate to protect his wife. His employer puts up a $3,000 reward on the Finley's behalf for information leading to the poet's capture. But Ed also tries contacting the poet himself. He actually puts an ad out in the Wichita Eagle Beacon that says, poet, tell me what I owe you, RSF. 
And the poet responds to RSF, the price of my service to stay alive can now be settled at five. But this isn't enough information for Ed to know how much that is or what it's supposed to mean. Um, They go back and forth several times, but none of it leads anywhere. And it doesn't it doesn't um, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. So in October of 1979, the newspaper puts out a statement saying that they've been receiving letters from the poet. Um, directly to them. Uh, in one, he writes, quote, make sure that you don't confuse the executioners again, referencing the rumors that the poet and BTK are the same person. Hmm. So the public, of course, is following this story like word for word. Um, and there's rumors all around town. Calls to the p- police constantly roll in with alleged poet sightings. None of them bring any leads or evidence. So Lieutenant Drowatsky assigns eight officers to go undercover around downtown and they have Ruth wear a wire whenever she goes out just in case he approaches her downtown again. Yeah. There's no sign of him. Um, But more letters with poems in them turn up on the Finley's porch and in their mailbox. And at night, they can hear strange noises from their garage. But when they go out there, they they don't catch anybody. Um, On Christmas Eve, 1979, the Finley's phone lines are cut. And that's the second time that's happened. So they're running out of options. Ruth agrees to undergo hypnosis to see if she can recall any other details from her attacks. A psychologist named Dr. Donald Schrag works with Ruth for two sessions until they reach the matter of her kidnapping and her demeanor shifts from calm to distraught as she cries out, I want out of the car. I want out of the car. Dr. Schrag, after this, these sessions, he concludes that whoever the poet is, quote, it's likely he's had psychological treatment and possibly has been in a state institution, end quote. Um, But he also believes that the man's highly intelligent. So in January of 1980, Lieutenant Drowatsky is promoted to vice and organized crime. So a man named Captain Mike Hill takes over Ruth's case. Soon after, Captain Hill receives a letter of his own from the poet, a line of which reads, there was once a captain who had an asshole for a heart. <laughs> he is a poet. Wow. I mean, That's it's really, it's so visual. Um, so... Jaratsky had forged this strong friendship with the Finleys. In fact, uh, they went to the same church. They had the, basically the same political views. And so uh, Jaratsky and his wife uh, went out with Ed and Ruth on like double dates okay. sometimes. Like All they right. socialized together. Yeah. Um, but Captain Hill has no personal relationship with them at all. So it gives him the advantage of an objective point of view. Oh. His first move after taking over the case is to install a surveillance camera in the Finley's backyard. He has officers posted in the Finley's dining room on a round the clock watch, checking the camera's monitors for any suspicious activity. Ruth feels guilty that all of these officers have to endure such a boring job. So she's constantly making them bake goods. And sometimes she even reads some of the poet's letters aloud to them for entertainment. So a month later, later on Valentine's Day, Ruth gets a menacing Valentine themed message and a second letter containing a strip of red bandana. 
Um, and there are also letters being sent to local businesses. The utility companies get letters instructing them to shut off Finley's gas and power. The health department gets a letter claiming that Ruth Finley is spreading STDs around town. The local mortuary gets a letter threatening that Ruth, quote, would be requiring them soon, end quote. Yikes. Um, so now Ed is driving Ruth to and from work, so she's never by herself. And at this point, it's been three years. Holy shit. So the police have looked into more than 300 people of interest. All of them are dead ends. They install another security camera at the Finley's home, this time hidden in a birdhouse in the backyard. Nothing happens. So in the spring of 1980, they decide to use Ruth as bait. They have her wear a bulletproof vest. <gasps> And walk around in downtown Wichita while several undercover cops are patrolling the area. But nothing comes of it. Then on June 3rd, 1980, Ruth gets a letter from the poet that's postmarked from Oklahoma City. So the Wichita police contact Oklahoma City police. They discover that an anonymous woman called in to report a recent poet sighting. So the police close in on a man who's recently been fired from his job in Wichita and they're certain that this must be the poet. Mm -hmm. But when they bring him in for a lineup, Ruth says that although he does look similar, it's just not him. So by July 4th, 1980, this story is national news. The rumors that the poet is BTK continue to spread. And police actually have a psycholinguistic expert named Dr. Murray S. Myron examine the handwriting in his in the letters. I think I know so he determines that while it's the handwriting is actually similar to BTK's, it's highly unlikely that they're the same person. Um, but the public can't let go of that idea. Okay. So the next few months, stranger and stranger items start showing up um, on the Finley's front porch. An ice pick, broken glass, Molotov cocktails, firecrackers, cigarettes, even hair. And at Christmas time, the Finleys are watching TV when they're jolted by the sound of their window breaking. Ed runs out onto the porch to find a burning wreath has been hung from their front window and the heat from that caused the window to explode. In a rage, Ed runs out into the street with a pair of garden shears screaming that he's going to kill the poet. Jesus. So they things continue like this into 1981. Um, the Wichita police are widely criticized by the public who can't believe they haven't been able to catch the poet. Um, and they also simultaneously aren't catching BTK yeah. either. So now Chief of Police Richard Lamunyan or Lamunyan but I'm going to say Lamunyan, is he's left fending off questions from the press about his department's ineptitude. Um, but Lamunyan's annoyance turns personal on Friday, September 4th, 1981, when the poet sends a letter to his wife. Oh, shit. Now, fed up, Lamunyan, who has had no personal involvement in the case as of yet, takes it over himself. Mm. So he, on September 5th, he takes all the poet case files home and pours over them. Um, it takes him several days, but at the end of his research, he believes he knows who the poet is. He calls a private meeting for select officers on September 11th, 1981, and he begins to explain his very secret theory. He says he finds it strange that all of Ruth's attacks have been in public places, yet there are zero witnesses uh. to any of these attacks. Uh. It's also strange that despite the all 
all the hours of round-the-clock surveillance, no officers and no neighbors have ever seen a trace of a trespasser, not even footprints on the Finley's property, and they live on a dead-end street. When the surveillance camera is installed in the Finley's backyard, all the action moves to the front porch. And then after Ruth's abduction, the only footprints the investigating officer find at the park are Ruth's. And when Ruth is stabbed, instead of calling 911 at the phone booth like a regular person would, she calls the direct line for central investigations. The officers in the room, basically what he's saying is he thinks that the poet is Ruth Finley. As soon as you said uh, he's able to look at it with a... Uh, the the new chief is able to look at it without any personal, um, you know, because he's not friends with her. I was like, no, oh, he doesn't have bias. He knows it's her. Yes. <laughs> and then yes. it hit me and I was like, don't say anything. Shut up. Shut up. Right? Oh, my God. But this is exactly the way writer Corey Mead laid this, ar- this article out. So the entire oh. time you think you're just reading this, a case that you've never heard of before. Tragic and then woman by the thing. time it gets to that exactly thing. Yeah. Where you're just like, this woman is being hideously victimized. Why have I never heard this story before? Um, so, but here's the thing. All of these police officers, the Wichita PD, yeah. think think this guy is nuts. They think the chief is totally lost it. Well, there's no they, like Munchausen syndrome back then, right? Like, why would anyone do that to themselves? Right, exactly. It's it's the kind of thing that, yes, no one had ever talked about yeah. anything like that detailed before. Totally. But also they know Ruth. They've come to know her over right. the past four years. They cannot believe she'd be the kind of person who would put her husband through that, who would who would do that to the police her or kids. do it to herself. Yeah. That's not what she's like. Like that's she's a kind, quiet, you know, very upstanding lady. Um, And what would her motive be? It didn't make sense to them. It didn't add up. Yeah. But since La Munion is the boss, they have to follow his theory. So beginning Monday, September 14th, 1981. La Munion sets up. A 24-hour surveillance on the Finleys with officers trading off 12-hour shifts in a van two blocks away from the Finleys house at the Eastgate Mall. This time without the Finleys knowing. Yeah. Um, so three days later at 8.30 in the morning on September 17th, the surveilling police capture photos of Ed driving Ruth up to the mailbox at the Eastgate Mall and depositing several pieces of mail. <gasps> So they run over and basically it takes them until 1.30 to get a, po- a postal o- officer, yeah. uh, sorry, the postal inspector to open that mailbox. And inside they find two letters from the poet. But too much time has passed between when Ruth dropped the mail off and when they were finally able to get it open. So technically someone else could have mailed those letters like they don't know for a fact those are the letters she put in yeah so basically nine days later they get another opportunity once more ed drives their car up to the same mailbox ruth leans out the passenger side to drop the mail in but this time an undercover cop pulls up right after them blocks the mailbox (laughs) pretending to have car trouble Uh so no one else can use this mailbox until they get the postal inspector Uh, down there to open it up right so this time there mixed in with the finley's regular mail is another letter from the poet 
Once this is confirmed, they reseal the envelope and they let the mail carrier deliver that letter to the Finley's home. Oh, sneaky, sneaky. So the next day, which is Sunday, September 27th, Ed brings the poet letter to the police, as he does with all of the poet letters they receive. But uh, then the police launch a search for more of the Finley's mail everywhere. Businesses they sent payments to, um, you know, like mail at her work. Mm -hmm. And they basically inspect all the envelopes and they're able to match the edges of the stamps because stamps used to get pulled out of books of stamps. And you would tear, there'd be perforated little holes where you pull the stamps apart. They match the tear, (laughs) the tearaways, and they see that all of these stamps are from the same book. They can, they can put them all back in. So. Um, police gain permission to search Ruth's office at work, and there they find the book of a book of poetry, paper with the poet's handwriting on it, and a red bandana concealed in a tissue in Ruth's desk. Oh. All of the this is enough to warrant a search of the Finley's house. So on September 28th, while the Finleys are away, they search the house, but they actually find no hard evidence inside the house. Come on! But then. Two days later, on Wednesday, September 30th, Chief Lamunyan and his wife Sharon get another letter from the poet. And at the bottom of the page, the page is torn off. So through microscopic fracture analysis, they are able to determine that the torn off piece from Ruth's trash can at work matches the piece at the bottom of the letter that Lamunyan received. Yeah, got. And this solid- yeah, got it. Yeah, got <laughs> This solidifies the case. So the next day on October 1st, 1981, the police ask Ed to come into the station to pick up the latest batch of poet letters, which is what usually happens. Mm -hmm. But when he gets there, um, Captain Hill and Detective Jack Leon take Ed into an interrogation room and they start asking him questions. Now, Ed's confused, but he cooperates that basically the officer spent two hours asking Ed about his life, his upbringing, all the way up until the beginning of the harassment in 1977 and they to get the idea of basically is Ed complicit in his totally. wife's plan. Um, is he? Oh my God. Finally, Captain Hill tells Ed that he knows who the poet is and Ed says, well, I hope the hell you do. Let's go get him. But then Hill shows Ed pictures of his wife dropping letters in the mailbox at the mall and explains that they can confirm that Ruth is the, in fact the letter writer. Ed is in utter shock. Hill asks if he'll agree to a polygraph test so he can be eliminated as a suspect. Ed agrees. He passes the test. He was never involved. Oh. It was all Ruth by herself. Eddie, I got bad news for you. I know. So, so sad. at five o'clock that same afternoon, Hill calls Ruth and has her come down to the station to look at mug shots to see if she can identify the poet, which is a common practice for her at this point. Yeah. She agrees. Hill walks her through the same interrogation procedure that he walked Ed through. And he finally asks Ruth if she wrote any of the poet's letters. She says no. But when he shows her the surveillance photos of herself mailing the letters and says that he can prove she did. She finally admits (sighs) she says she has a vague memory of sitting in her basement writing letters. Uh, but when she thinks back, she can't tell what's a dream and what's reality. Oh, dear. I was hoping you were going to say they'd show her a mugshot lineup and hers was in it. And that's how she'd know. <laughs> and she's like, there he is right there. Ah! Oh, um, no. Yep. Yeah, basically, 
he asks, he then asks, he switches his tone and gets mean Mm -hmm. and asks her if the attack went from when she was 16 years old, if that Mm -hmm. even really happened. She swears it did. Um, but she gets starts to get really upset. He switches back to a gentle tone and basically says, quote, Ruthie, why? It's time. It's time to tell me why. I'm not mad at you, Ruth. I want to know why you're doing this. So after some prodding, Ruth eventually admits to everything, the letters, the calls, the odd objects left at her house, even her own stabbing. But she says it wasn't a deliberate plan as much as it was kind of this fuzzy memory that she can barely recall. Basically, it's a she's really ashamed and she's almost she's confused but she's really ashamed and when when Hill says to her there's no hard feelings between you and me, Ruth says, quote, there should be. I wish I was dead. Oh, my God. So she confirms that Ed was not involved at all, but she makes it clear she needs medical help. She says she thinks she's crazy. And then she says, quote, I tried to figure out what was wrong, but I couldn't stop it. So that night she's taken to the psychiatric ward of St. Joseph's Hospital for treatment. After much debate, the Wichita police make the controversial decision not to press charges against Ruth, citing that she was suffering from severe mental distress and had no malicious intent. She did, however, cost the department almost $400,000 for all their investigative efforts over the past four years. And Chief LaMagnon does not agree with this decision not to press charges. Mm. He considers her a dangerous criminal. Wow. Basically, Ruth goes into therapy with a Dr. Andrew Pickens, um, and this goes on for the next seven years. And she's finally able to uncover the source of her issues, which takes her a while to get to and then takes her years to process afterwards. Sure. But in a sense, what's interesting and kind of fascinating about it is she does it using the same technique that the poet does, she begins writing poetry about it. And she finally unwinds like all of those things that she was writing in the poet's poems. They all kind of pulled into her reality and what she, she basically had faced a long buried childhood trauma of sexual abuse by a neighbor when she was only four years old. What the fuck? It was a man who had used red bandanas to tie (gasps) her up. So, oh, my God. So, like, there was actual symbolism in her. Wow. So she basically says that when that happened to her and it went on for a couple months, that she would remember, quote unquote, floating off to heaven, which was a common it which is a common dissociative tactic that the brain uses in times of severe trauma. So it's a defense tactic. Her doctors theorize that allowed her to develop this kind of separate identity as the poet. And then in 1977, when Ed has his heart attack and she is alone for the first time in her life, while the BTK is (sighs) like gone, basically killing people around town and no one knows who he is. Yeah. Basically her brain switches back into this dissociative mode and the stress she basically, it's like this cry for help. Um, Wait, so did the, the, the teenage attack happen? Yeah. Okay. So that probably, that's like, yeah, as far as we know. As far as we know. And yeah. Yeah. And basically it seems like the, the police in that town believe. I feel like, 
that attack alone as a teenager would have triggered that reaction from BTK too, because that's a similar thing. He was breaking into women's houses and murder, tying up and murder. It's like either of those could have all of it. it. Yes. All of it. Yeah. It's all, it's all horrible parallels to her life. Yeah. And if she was repressing it and then that attack, you know, she was kind of able to come back and then she has this marriage that's really um, solid for her. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's this really strong, great marriage relationship family she builds yeah. for 30 years. Everything is like going great. Yeah. And then this thing happens that's like shock after shock. Yeah. You know, so um, the only person who doesn't believe this theory is Chief La Mignon. Who would later say, quote, I think she's lying. She knew everything she was doing, unquote. Wow. But no one in Ruth's family or friendship circle believes that at all. In fact, Ed stands by her. Their marriage lasts through this horrible experience. And um, she was quoted as saying, it's been hard on Ed, but he's the kindest person I know. And he's been very supportive. But also her friends and neighbors rallied by her side. Um, her neighbor, Emma Dillinger, is quoted in that People magazine article saying, Ruth told me her story and gave me the option of cutting off our friendship. But all I wanted to do was comfort her. Oh, my God. Um, and all of Ruth's love, loved ones like basically had that same reaction. And after five years in treatment, she feels strong enough to talk about her story on a local um, like news station. And after she basically tells her side of the story, there's, they start getting the station starts getting calls and 98% of them were compassionate and loving and completely supportive of her. Like an overwhelming majority were just like, this is unbelievable. Um, So it turns out that the poet of Wichita was not a violent madman, but a woman who didn't even know herself how much she needed to be heard. (sighs) On May 30th, 2019, Ruth Finley passed away at the age of 89. And that is the fascinating story of Ruth Finley, also known as the poet of Wichita. What the fuck what the fuck give the credit to the person who suggested it to you again because brilliant sweet sweetly sarcastic read um that article by Corey mead first on medium.com and sent it along to me i mean i i also think that part of me hesitated um and i think i felt like i may have begun to read this story one time when we were on the road Mm -hmm. but but i hate the idea of talking about um uh, uh, going this far into a story where a, uh, a, a female victim is lying because it does yes. not it doesn't happen that often yeah and that kind of thing of like these false reports it's 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 i think it's one of the reasons that it's not a very well-known story that makes is sense. because it's this is it's as crazy as a serial killer it's as unlikely yeah, yeah. it's as you know it's very common for women to be stalked. It's very common for women to be raped. It's yeah. very common for women to be attacked mm-hmm. and abused. So this is an, uh, a true anomaly that then kind of grew into a whole other um, crazy. I mean, Wichita, it, it almost it, it's. I don't know. It's fascinating. There's so many it's layers. All- There's so many layers to it. 
that's the a react- really good point, but that doesn't mean a story shouldn't be told. And we tell a, 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 a huge amount of different types of stories on this podcast. And it's right. one, this is one of those examples, but it's not, it's not a uh, rule. So I think it's, it deserves a place in this podcast. And that was incredible job telling the story. The medium writer did an incredible job. So yeah, and it I happened. Mean, yeah. It happened. Here's the thing. It happened and it didn't end in a in a, a pitchforks and torches mob. You know what I mean? Yeah. It it ended with people going, uh what why would someone do this? This is baffling. Yeah. Because there weren't she was the only victim and Ed. Yeah. yeah. And then the wasted time. But it's like, what what was she doing? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And then it's like, but everybody has their reasons. And, you know, <sighs> fucking crazy. Great job. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Why do I always remember lyrics to songs, Karen, that I haven't heard for years, but I always forget my email passwords? I know, right? It's like our brains only want us to retain useless information, but with 1Password, that problem solved. 1Password is an award-winning password manager that's trusted by families and large-scale companies alike. If you're tired of being the person that everyone texts for a streaming login, hand that honor to 1Password. They let you share logins with people and with groups. With 1Password, you can securely switch between any device type or operating system. That means if you're a family or business that uses both Mac and PC, you won't have trouble sharing your private data. Don't let the name fool you. 1Password does more than just store passwords. It can autofill usernames, payment details, and personal information. And they notify you about potential data breaches. For business operations, 1Password has a dedicated support team that will integrate its security tools into your existing workflow. 1Password saves everyone time. And we all know that time saved equals money saved saved. Your accounting department will thank you. Don't just listen to us. 1Password was named Wirecutter's best password manager and companies like Salesforce and IBM trust 1Password to secure their most sensitive information. So you can too. Right now, our listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash MFM. That's two free weeks at one, as in the number one, password.com slash MFM. onepasswordcom slash MFM. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. All right. I had an epiphany this week that although it feels like this story is part of the folklore that is my favorite murder, it's a tale as old as time in our lives. We actually don't know the full story of the cocaine bear.
Oh, we don't. We know a snippet from a minisode, minisode 101. Thank you, Stephen. But who, why, what, where? Let's find out today. I thought you did this story. I asked Stephen, did I do it when we were in Kentucky? No, I looked up the murders. Have we been to Kentucky? Kentucky. Yeah, we have, but it wasn't. I thought, okay. Well, great. Let's I thought hear it. so too when I was halfway through and that's why I text Stephen and he said no. So not, <laughs> don't tell me I don't care. <laughs> Doing it today. Yeah. If you, if you figure out otherwise, you can go ahead and let Stephen know at <laughs> personal Stephen email at earthlink.gov. That's right. All right. So I got info from a Rolling Stone article by E.J. Dixon, a Slate article by Matthew Desim, uh, the Kentucky for Kentucky website by uh, Coleman Larkin, and the IFL Science article by James Felton. So here we go, Karen. I'm going to tell you the tale. I, I want to know the truth about the cocaine bear before I before I see the movie. It's truth. It's legend. It's truly a legend. OK. On the morning of September 11th, 1985, Mr. Fred M. Myers of Knoxville, Tennessee, woke up, walked out of his home on Island Home Pike in South Knoxville and found a dead man in his backyard. <gasps> yep. So Mr. Myers recalled hearing a crash around midnight night the night before, and it turned out the crash he had heard had been that of the dead man fla- falling from the sky and landing in his backyard. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's horrible. It is a horrible start. So the body of the man was dressed in khaki and it was sprawled out on his back over an unopened parachute. Uh, there was no obvious injuries aside from a trickle of dried blood from each of his nostrils. But other than mm. that, he looked fine. Authorities arrived and found that the dead man was wearing a bulletproof vest and night vision goggles <laughs> uh-huh, and was carrying two different pistols, ammunition, a stiletto knife, freeze dried food and six cougarans, which are gold <laughs> coins. Yes, I love cougarans. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my favorite cougars. reference. <laughs> $4,500 cash, IDs and multiple names, a membership card to the Miami Jockey Club, and several uh, inspirational epigrams, which I know you love. Epigrams? <laughs> epigrams. Yeah, like you mean like keep soar high like a mighty bird? That's right. Keep on trucking. Those kinds? <laughs> well, Are his, those epigrams? I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. Let me read you one. That's definitely an epigram because this is okay. one of the ones he had on him. Wait a second. Is an epigram the same thing forward and backwards? No, mine wouldn't work. <laughs> no, fly high like a mighty eagle won't work. Wait, let me spell that backwards and try to. No, you're <laughs> right. Okay, this is one. This one read: There is only one tactical principle not subject to change. It is to inflict the maximum amount of wounds, death, and destruction on the enemy in the minimum amount of time. It sounds like a Chuck Norris type of like thing that they like that they live by. You know, like a here's what it I live like by. A- it sounds like the kind of shirt that you'd be right up against in line at 7-Eleven. And then once you read that epigram or whatever yeah. the fuck it, you're claiming it to be, then you back way up and you're just like, uh oh, I didn't realize you're here to do the most damage in the shortest time. And you're like, of hey, mister, can I touch your nunchucks? And hey, then... <laughs> are those nunchucks in your pocket? That's right. So that he had that on him. 
poetry and he had a duffel bag with about 75 pounds of cocaine that was 95 percent pure and i wanted to like i wanted to like in my head picture 75 pounds of cocaine which is hard to do with powder right so then i looked up like how many pounds of chocolate bars would that be but then i thought okay well how much (laughs) what kid weighs 75 pounds and so i looked it up in an average 10 year old female weighs 75 pounds so that's how much cocaine if you held an average 10 year old female in one hand and cocaine in the other that weighed the same you could also do it uh basically if you're doing five pound bags of sugar oh but but cocaine there would be about 14 bags of sugar oh that's a lot no wonder his parachute didn't open. And if it's 95% pure, you can get some baby laxative and cut it in there. And then you can have like, then you have like 35 pounds of cocaine. And you just get all the kids at the junior college Uh-oh. to buy it. And you're in Cabo, baby. 90s Karen just snuck up on this podcast and was like, hey, I have an uh, idea. Hey, man. Look, man. Be cool. All right. So police came and we're like, what is this scene? It was like baffling to everyone, of course. Uh, Narcotics agents came. DEA customs were very baffled by this innocent looking backyard scene. I guess it wasn't innocent looking. Anyway, not innocent with the Krugerrands. <laughs> no, that's you, not. I'm telling you, anytime Krugerrands are involved, <laughs> this is an international issue that we have. Or wins. it's a spy movie starring Brad Pitt. <laughs> Either way, Either way, you're fucked. You're fucked. <laughs> So police by afternoon are able to identify the body. And even then, they still had few theories as to what the hell happened. But they do identify him as Andrew Carter Thornton, the second of Kentucky. So let me tell you about Andrew Carter Thornton, the second, as you can tell by his name. Yes, he came from a wealthy family. He's royalty. That's right. So he's born on October 30th, 1944 to Carter and Peggy Thornton in Southern Bourbon County, Kentucky. Uh, Carter and Peggy had a grand old time being wealthy and breeding horses at their stud farm. Lucky. So Andrew grew up living a privileged life in Lexington, Kentucky. He attended prestigious private schools along with other Lexington Blue Bloods. He went to the military academy, Sewanee Military Academy, and then joined the army as a paratrooper. Then he became an Air Force officer. He earns a Purple Heart. You know, he's on his way up. Um, and next in his illustrious career, he becomes a police officer in the Lexington, Kentucky Police Force Narcotics Division. Mm-hmm. So here he is. Uh, but then in 1977, he resigns because he now wants to practice law. So he goes to the University of Kentucky Law School. Um, and apparently the law applied to everyone but himself because as a 1980 federal indictment alleges, he was part of a drug and weapons smuggling ring called the company. Ooh. Oh, uh, yeah. And it also reportedly involved other former Kentucky police officers as well. So maybe he went to law school to be like, I'm going to keep this business going and like <laughs> not for good reasons. Mm-hmm. So in 1981, he's arrested along with 25 other men. They were attempting to steal guns from a naval base in Fresno, California. Risky. And for attempting to traffic a thousand pounds of marijuana into the county. Into San Diego? Uh, Fresno. Oh, yeah. I thought drugs lived in Fresno. Why do they have to smuggle them in? 
Uh, yeah, especially from like Kentucky. Yeah. No one in no one in Cali wants that KY weed. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> Keep it for yourselves and your and your stud horses. We're good over here. <laughs> So DEA agent Robert Brightwell, who says he worked with Thornton on narcotics investigations in the early 70s, described him as a, quote, an 007 paramilitary type personality, an adventurer driven by adrenaline rushes who became bored with being a cop. So Mm. we got this guy who thinks he's James Bond or Chuck Norris. It seems like a cross between the two. And he's bored with even being a narcotics cop, which sounds pretty entertaining and fun, if you ask and me. And stressful. And stressful. Yeah. Like, what yeah. more do you need? What And legal. Yeah. So not enough for some people. Never enough. Never. Initially, Andrew was given two felony charges of conspiracy to import and distribute a controlled substance to which he pled not guilty. Uh, but he fled the state and then it was found heavily armed in North Carolina and brought back to California to face reduced misdemeanor drug charges. So he got his charges super duper reduced. Let's go back and talk about how he was wealthy. That's how yeah. it probably happened. And Hoyt. Hoyty toity. He pleaded no contest to the, the charges, was sentenced to six months, months in prison and fined $500. Um, and he also had his law license revoked. So, Karen, this last brush with the law was all it took for Andrew to see the error of his ways, straighten up, find Jesus, and not cause the death of a black bear, right? Lies. No. <laughs> Turns out, find, no. Find Jesus is how I knew. <laughs> so a woman named Betty Zaring was his former wife, and she said about him, quote, he was a... Uh, he was a son of a bitch. He was a son of a bitch. And then she shot That's... two pistols in the air. <laughs> this son of a bitch had shitty Kentucky weed. Always trying to give me that weed. No, she said he was a philosophical, incredibly disciplined, extremely spiritual and loyal warrior with his own code of ethics who thrived on excitement. And then she lit a candle on his on her <laughs> under his headshot. Okay. Um, yeah, she, she was into that guy. Yeah, I think she still liked him. She's so, she likes that I guy. I think so. Did your dog just belch? No, she growled at me because uh, oh. I just realized I didn't feed her dinner. Oh, but shit. I did give her two cheese sticks. Does she? you want to go feed her dinner? No, no, no. It's fine. Okay. She can make it. <laughs> it sounded like that song. Bow, bow, boo. That, that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she went, wow. Wow. Okay. You have to just give me half an hour. You got it. On September 9th, 1985, Andrew is now 40. He enlists the help of his, don't be, don't be too surprised by this, karate instructor turned bodyguard, <laughs> Shit. a man named Bill Leonard. So the pair, along with a third man who is a Colombian man that Bill had apparently never met, they get on a Cessna 404 airplane. So... Bill alleges that he just got on the plane. He didn't know what they were doing. And Mm -hmm. but while en route, according to Bill, in a 1990 interview with former Knoxville News Sentinel managing editor Tom Chester, Leonard said that while he knew of Andrew's shady drug fueled, uh, you know, past and and reputation, he had not known that this flight was to involve drugs. He didn't know. Wasn't me, officer. And insisted that Andrew had sprung the plot on him mid-flight as the plane flew over the Bahamas. It was raining and dark. 
Um, and I guess he hadn't asked, hey, who's this Colombian stranger on board with us, too? He hadn't asked that when they were getting no, on the yeah, plane. No. no, he was like, whatever. Yeah, just um, Let's a it. bunch of strangers on a Cessna. It'll be fine. Yeah. I'm oh, sure wait, nothing will happen. Right. Yeah, Andrew, no. <laughs> uh, Andrew told Leonard the plan that they would pick up 400 kilograms of cocaine <laughs> in Colombia and smuggle it into the U.S. Although... I can see the logic of being like, don't fucking tell Andrew yes. on the tarmac. It, we have to be in the air. He's going to yeah. have one of his classic freakouts. Yeah. He'll just do yeah. it. He always goes along with any plan. Andrew's the Andrew is uh, is the what's his name? Andrew's the main guy. Bill is the uh, foil. Whatever. doesn't matter. Who's got the cougarants? Andrew. Bill? Andrew. Andrew's got the cougar. Bill is karate. Bill is the <laughs> This whole thing sounds like Danny McBride and James Franco got stoned together and wrote this up. This doesn't seem real. Does it now not surprise you that Elizabeth uh, Banks is part of it? Everyone's like, how are yeah. they going to make this music? I think you just cast it. Essentially. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Bill said, if he had told me, hey, Bill, we're going to Columbia to smuggle 400 kilos of cocaine to America, I would have gone. Yeah, right. That would have been the end of it right there. He tricked me. There is no way in hell. I mean, anybody that knows me in Lexington knows there's no way I would do anything like this. I was a nobody. <laughs> and then he winked at the, at the reporter. Nudge, nudge, nudge. <laughs> gave him a bag of cocaine and walked and away. <laughs> tightened up his brown belt. That's right. And karate chops him <laughs> to the face. <laughs> <laughs> and then stole the co bag of cocaine and ran in the op opposite direction to his jojo, to his jojo and fucking yeah. all was well. <laughs> then he said about Andrew when he told him about this plan, he said the look on his face was hard to explain. He was smiling, but he had a very intense look in his eyes and he was watching me very closely. Cocaine. In my heart, cocaine. <laughs> in love my heart, cocaine. I would love if Bill actually was just this foil who had no clue about it at all. It was just like this local Lexington dude that he really liked. He just thought Andrew was the coolest. And I was like, come along, even though he knew Bill would yeah. fuck it up somehow. And he did. Yep. Okay. But Bill hating to be someone who cancels plans, apparently, uh, they move on with their mission and picked up the freight that was in Columbia and were somewhere over Florida when Bill claimed that they heard federal agents talking over the radio about following their plane. Breaker, breaker. Uh, <laughs> So Bill, who had <laughs> picture this, Bill had been vomiting over an open door out <laughs> no. the plane because that's how inexperienced he was on planes. Poor Bill. <laughs> he had like a Hawaiian yeah. shirt on because he thought they were going to the Bahamas and now it's just splattered with barf. <laughs> no, Aww. but you still can't tell. That's the Tommy Bahama promise. <laughs> <laughs> you, part, you can puke on yourself that's and no right. one will know. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so he hears this, he freaks out, he stops vomiting, and he opened a door and kicked three bags of cocaine out. <laughs> no, what? Like, what? let's get rid of this cocaine then. We're being followed. Andrew, of course, being a businessman, <laughs> freaks out and is like, he's hates a party foul. So he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And the two of them start to argue. Okay. Uh, and Bill says, quote, right at that time, when it looks like we're going to rip each other's throats out, he just starts laughing. I don't know what happened. I started laughing. The next thing I know, we're both rolling around in the plane laughing. That's probably the safety hazard, right? Uh, tears coming out of our eyes. He turned around and said, I'm really sorry for getting you involved in this. I can see this is not your thing. <laughs> You're a family man. Just do what I tell you and I'll get you out. That's a quote. I didn't just fucking... 
make that up. This is uh, I'm sorry, but this is also if you've ever seen the fucking Peter Falk movie and Ellen Markin movie, The In-Laws. This is the <laughs> a very similar plot to The In-Laws. <laughs> this is like we thought the cocaine bear aspect of this story was the best part of the story. So we never yeah. bothered looking it up. I completely in my mind connected it to a totally different story you did the full version of. Yeah. And just in my mind was like, oh, yeah, that must be connected to that thing. <laughs> I know. How did we really not know a story when no, it ended with a bear dying on cocaine was going to be even better? I think it got it was like sh- surmised perfectly in that email, yes. the original email where they were just like this thing happened. But what's important is this. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we're going to boil it down. I meant to give credit to the first person, the person whose hometown we read because they like really brought it into our lives and deserve full credit. But I forgot to do that. And I'm sure it's impossible <laughs> to find at this point. So it's impossible. It's impossible. All right. Um, I, I have it. <laughs> it's, cra- <laughs> it's even impossible. That's your it's new name. It's setup. It's from Sam. So there's oh. no other details, <laughs> but it's just Sam. So. Sam. Sam and Lexington. I know you were screaming your name out there and we heard it. So thank Sam. you, Sam. Well, because it was about Good my job. mother's ex-boyfriend, the cocaine cowboy. So I think Wait. she dated one of the people. Wow. Okay. Can she dated Andrew, up? probably. Yeah, Andrew yeah. I'll, I'll look Bill. up the original email, yeah. Okay. What if she dated Bill? Bill's not the cocaine cowboy. He threw three huge bags out. He's cowboy adjacent. Here's the thing. (laughs) He is a a cowboy entrapment, A. And B, if there's a plane following you, don't throw anything out of your plane. They can see you. They're going to go after it. Essentially, is he, yes or no, a, a cowboy caricature? Yes. Andrew's the real thing. He's got a little tiny tiny hat. Tiny horse. And a tiny horse. (laughs) Big head, tiny hat, tiny horse. Cougar ant. Yes. So Sam's mother dated Andrew Carter Thornton, the second. Holy shit, Sam. Shit, Sam. Is he your dad secret? Like your secret? If only we knew. Dad. That's it? Okay. That was Sam, how big is your head? How small (laughs) is your hat? Sam. (laughs) All right. Uh, so Andrew tells Bill to cut loose three duffel bags of cocaine from their parachute and dump them from the plane. Okay. Okay. So then Thornton's like, I'm going to help you out, man. I'm going to get you out of this. I'm sorry. I even got you into it. You're not really good at this anyways. So he gives, uh, he gives Bill a four minute lesson in skydiving. Essentially, he's like, here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. Put this on, clip that. Um, and he, uh, can I just really quickly with great rage? Yeah say that's not fucking cool as someone (laughs) as someone who is taught to snorkel yeah by being in in a bay in hawaii with my stuff on and my ex being like no no you have to like suction it to your face and just being Uh, like you you don't mention any of this yeah at any time before like you don't you're now waiting until we're i'm treading in 30 foot water before you start to tell me the things i need to know yeah like, you're already you, scared because you're in the shark tank, essentially. I hate. Here's the thing. I really resent people who are bad teachers because they if they already know it, then you in their mind, you know, exactly. It too. Or you should I under- can't take it like they don't even understand that you won't understand the words that are connected to it that are like, you know, part of it. I get what you mean. Fuck everyone. Yeah, it's like it. Bill, who didn't want to be involved in a drug trafficking situation in the first place, now has to learn yeah. how to fucking skydive under pressure. Yeah. He's like, first of all, what is a cougar ant? 
And I, <laughs> first of all, what is an epigram? Yeah. Let's start at the very beginning. Is it a poster? Is it just, is it on a hat is at there, the truck stop? Oh, we got to get, this? we got to get an old school, like inspirational photo of a skydiver and get that quote. <laughs> yeah. So a murdering is already making it. As we're talking, get that terrible epitaph and put it over epigram, epigram, whatever you want. Is it like a hologram, but just two sided? Get a hologram. Get a hologram. Let Bill tell the story himself. A hologram of Bill. (laughs) The next My Favorite Murder Live show. We got Bill on stage. Okay. Stop it. And then Robert Kardashian to close. <laughs> okay. Okay. So basically, uh, Andrew ties the remaining duffel bag of cocaine to his body with a nylon bag containing two pi- the, his whole kit that he's later found dead with. Spoiler alert. So they, yes. um, so they prepare to jump as the plane on autopilot now flies over Knoxville. So poor Bill jumps first. He landed and the word hard is always in there. He lands hard near Knoxville downtown Island Home Airport, about three miles from downtown. Thornton had told him to walk to a grocery store, call a cab and then gave him the address where he was going to meet Thornton's girlfriend at the uh, uh, Hyatt Hotel. I wonder if it's Sam's fucking mom. Yeah, perhaps. So. They go to the the uh, Hyatt Hotel with his girlfriend to wait for Andrew to show up, but he never shows up. So uh, let's go back to the morning where the guy finds the dead body in his backyard that is identified as Andrew. Um, in Andrew's pocket is a key and they were able to match the key, the tail number on the key to the wreckage of a plane, which had crashed into a mountain in Clay County, Carolina. They had found it on autopilot and uh, it had landed about 60 miles away from where they jumped. That's dangerous. So dangerous. Just to let the plane go off by itself. Totally irresponsible, especially if they're over Knoxville. That's like human. Humans live there. So when the cops, when the investigators had found Andrew's body, of course, they found all that cocaine on him. And they were like, there's got to be more cocaine than like in the plane. And they searched the surrounding areas and found 220 pounds of of marijuana, of cocaine hanging from a parachute in a tree in Fannin County, Georgia. They found maps, clothes, food and all that stuff um, a couple days later. More duffel bags of cocaine were found months later in northern Georgia. So cocaine everywhere. It's a fucking everywhere. It's a, like a confetti cocaine plane. <laughs> okay. Cocaine Easter egg hunt, That's right. but all through the mountains. So Jeez. they were they were found months later. But before that, a black bear stumbled upon the cocaine. <sighs> Enter there he is. our friend Cocaine Bear. Spotlight. Hat cane. Okay, now it's the solo. Hello, my baby. Lights go down. Spotlight on. Cocaine bear. I'm just a little cocaine bear. Wandering around the forest, not high or wired. What will my day bring? What's this? What's this? A pile of powdered sugar? No. Well, a local hunter who sadly has never been identified because Hero uh, had found the dead bear and told his friends about it, but none of them reported it to authorities because they're hunters in Georgia and they don't, I think, 
mingle with authorities. They're, they're like, mind your business. Exactly. So it took yeah. three weeks for the story to finally trickle down to a game and fish agent who then told an, um, the agents at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and they discovered the bear's body on December 20th. So that bear, it, it, you know, uh, as much as it, it's lived in our hearts and minds, it essentially snorted up a bunch of coke and died kind of on the spot, sounds like. It, Just it, immediately od It's so... No, listen, let's keep in our hearts and minds and in Nick Terry's incredible animation that he did of this. That's fucking classic. (laughs) One of everyone's favorites that they had a grand old time. It was so much fun. Um, All the all the the woodland creatures came together and got wired. That's right. A medical examiner conducted an autopsy on the bear and found every telltale sign of a massive overdose. Let's all sing it together. Cerebral hemorrhaging. Respiratory failure, hypothermia, renal failure, stroke, and heart failure. Oh, no. Yeah, like it died, died. And then I wrote, it's unclear if the detailed plans to open a restaurant called Bear Essentials were ever located. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, I did. Because you had to. Because I had to get it in there. George, quiet. George's tonight. The part of the bear is being played by George (laughs) Kilgareth. By George, who hasn't eaten yet. Say it. (laughs) <laughs> i get that all right so but that um medical examiner was so impressed with the bear and its state um that and that despite everything the bear's body was actually in good shape so he was like you know it'd be a pity just to throw this in the cremator and calls up a buddy a hunting buddy who was a taxidermist uh, mm-hmm. taxidermist and so the bear's tax taxidermy taxidermized that's a word. And put on display at the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area in Georgia. But it doesn't have like a plaque saying what it is. It's just like a fucking taxidermy bear. So it, sure. doesn't, it doesn't get its fl- full glory just yet. Um, but so there's an approaching wildfire uh, that forces the employees of that place to load up some of their artifacts into a storage unit. Someone breaks into the storage unit, steals a bunch of artifacts and cocaine bear. <laughs> Twist and fucking turns, man. <laughs> so, sorry, a forest fire is coming. Yeah. And they're like, grab the important stuff. <laughs> Dan, you, Jerry, Rick, and TJ, grab that fucking gigantic taxidermy bear that uh-huh. died five ways. Uh-huh. And Chris died is of like, a- <laughs> oh, well, I'll go get the arrowheads. And like, um, <laughs> I'll get the, the precious, precious arrowheads. I'll get the precious feathers and the arrowheads while you guys lug <laughs> the fucking cocaine bear the coat the fully taxidermied and stuffed with sawdust yeah hurry up guys okay then some creeper creeps so some college students steal find out that the (laughs) cocaine bear is at the at the (laughs) storage unit Uh uh-huh at the georgia storage unit on i-5 and and (laughs) where where i-5 meets the 210 the 210 (laughs) that's glendale okay uh nearly three decker okay so it's stolen goodbye gone forever so we think no yeah almost 30 years later after the bear's death the eccentric they're described as an eccentric retailer kentucky for kentucky which you can go online and find their website they seem like a lot of real fun people because oh yeah they 
do some digging and investigating. They contact local pawn shops where the storage unit had been and are like, hey, do you remember 30 some odd years ago getting a bear, a taxidermy bear? And the shop owner's like, yeah. That came in at the same time that some like some like uh, uh, feathers and feathers and arrowheads had came in and we found out they were stolen. So we returned those. But the bear was never claimed. So we sold it. Kentucky for Kentucky. We're like, well, where did that bear go? And they're like, let us look up our records. They find their records. And it turns out that the bear had somehow through some changes fallen into the hands of country legend Waylon Jennings. (laughs) No. No. Waylon Jennings. Here, here on this fucking line, we have Waylon fucking Jennings. Looking and Willie and the boy. There you go. So it turns mm-hmm. out that Waylon Jennings has a huge private collection of preserved animals. He's like a big animal head head. He's and a big de- dead animal head head. <laughs> exactly. So he actually, Waylon Jennings, Kentucky for Kentucky found out, has relationships with pawn shop owners throughout the South to let him know whenever they get like a really good taxidermied or preserved bear. And me too. Me too. <laughs> so they had contacted him and it had gone with Waylon Jennings to Nevada to live with Waylon Jennings in Las Vegas. Yeah, this bear, this bear is living now more than ever. This bear has had a more exciting life than any of us. Oh, shit. Um, except for Karen in the 90s. Okay. That's true. <laughs> so, 90s Karen can compete with cocaine absolutely. bear. Absolutely. So they trace it further in its illustrious journey and they find that its current owner, uh, and its current resting place was a, a traditional Chinese medicine shop in Reno. And oh. it's owned by the now deceased man named Zhu Tang, and it had been used there as decoration. <laughs> so Kentucky for Kentucky contacts this man's widow, Mr. Tang's widow, and she tells them that her husband, quote, was always bringing home junk from auctions and estate sales and st- things like that. The bear oh. was one of his favorite things. He just loved it for some reason. At first, he, he had great fucking days. <laughs> At first, he wanted to keep it in our living room, but I wouldn't have it. It's <laughs> scared me. I made him take it to the store. (laughs) You knew there was going to be an irritated wife somewhere along the line, whether it was Mrs. Jennings or Mrs. Tang here, where it's somebody going, are you fucking kidding You're not Uh, keeping that near the children. No full-size bears in the TV (laughs) room. We talked about this. I come home with an estate from an estate set with a pair of matching vintage lamps. Mr. Tang comes home with a fucking full-size with cocaine bear. The full-on cocaine bear. White white powder underneath its nose. (laughs) So Kentucky for Kentucky in their fucking infinite glory tells her the whole story and she's like, uh, they said she almost didn't believe us, but for she said that if he'd gone to that much trouble, we could just have, quote, the damn thing <laughs> <laughs> just to get yes. it out of her sight. Do you know yep. what they do? You know what she charged them? Shipping? Yes. Shipping handling? Yes. For real? She didn't charge him right? a penny. She said, get oh. it out of my fucking sight. It was $200 <laughs> to ship it home to Kentucky. And they fucking <gasps> did it. No, sorry. Can I just ask a clarifying question? Yeah. Kentucky for Kentucky is like an like a basically a cool store. They is have that a correct? mall now. Let me see. Hold on. Let me look up, Stephen. Hold on. Is like an artist collective type of thing? That's a great question. Let's find out. Okay. Oh, I just want details on these, like, Absolutely. obviously cool, fun people. Because they're clearly our new best friends. Like mm-hmm. Preservation Society or something. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. So there's we're talking there's a lot of uh like calf tattoos. We're talking about a lot of interesting glasses okay. I'm seeing. Their website is KY for KY. Oh, and they have the fun mall. Okay, you know, there's a there's a, a commercial online. It looks like just like a um like a cool shop of like Kentucky gear. It says a kick-ass Commonwealth since 19... Oh, a kick-ass Commonwealth since 1792. That's the actual state of Kentucky they're talking about. Got it. Oh, (laughs) got it. Okay, yeah, they look like a wacky bunch. I'm looking at their about site. There's a lot of... There's a Kentucky fried chicken um, bucket hat. Let's see. Did you see the shirt? It looks like a like a Yale sweatshirt, but it says y'all. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, this I want one of those real bad. Here's their mission. Our mission is to engage and inform the world by promoting Kentucky people, places and products and to kick ass for the Commonwealth. All right. Nice. I love them. Okay. So they'll be invited to our next show and and invited to give me a Kentucky fried chicken (laughs) hat, please. KY for KY presents the never ending pandemic warehouse sale. (laughs) (laughs) They also have a commercial for their fun mall that like is super kitschy and funny. So look them up online. Uh, Yeah, they these shirts. Oh, my God. You know how the cicadas or cicadas, however you pronounce mm -hmm. it. There's a thing where they're coming back this year after 28 years. Mm -hmm. and They're all going to there's like they have a picture on the KY for KY web it's KY for KY.com and it's a t-shirt cicadas t-shirt and it says let me hear y'all make some noise (laughs) (laughs) so they're a fun bunch they're funny they're funny and fun and love to have fun and buy bears so they bought it that makes it even better they bought the (sighs) fuck they they tracked down single-handedly and bought the cocaine bear because they thought it was i bet they were drinking one night and we're like you know it'd be so funny and what we need here the cocaine bear and they're like what happened to it and then they found it really quick they have a t-shirt that says i'm not a cat i'm i'm here live i'm not a cat from when that guy was in court and the cat face (laughs) They have a T-shirt of I'm that here cat alive. Face. I'm not a cat. <laughs> yeah, these guys are on the ball, they are on Kentucky money, style, on trend. Okay, right. and there's a cocaine bear. They have their own Wait, cocaine stop. bear Don't T-shirt. Don't say it. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. Part of it. What? Hold you on. don't want me looking at their website while you're trying to tell your story. <laughs> I don't know what this. the problem is. Let me read this. So the bear <laughs> is now on display at the Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall in Lexington. They sell a line of merchandise based on the bear, including T-shirts, which you've seen me wearing before. Someone at our Kentucky show gave me one. Mm-hmm. Hats, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and snow globes that they call blow globes. <laughs> Sense of humor. Yeah. Um, okay. As we all read in Variety recently, Elizabeth Banks has signed on to direct the Cocaine Bear film produced by the dudes who made the Lego movies. And um, they haven't released a lot of details, but the movie has been described as a, quote, character driven thriller inspired by truth events that took place in Kentucky in 1985. So I hope. Oh, period piece. Period piece. Great. A thriller. It could be great. It's going to be great. Um, and then I wrote, hopefully they'll include the quote that was included in Thornton's obituary. So Andrew Thornton's obituary. One line read, quote, I'm glad his parachute didn't open. What? <laughs> Someone hated him. You make some enemies when you're killing <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> it reminds me of I curse you with my dying breath. That's yeah, the new, I'm glad real. his parachute didn't open. Someone Wait, said. that can't have been in his obituary. It was in his mean- obituary. I swear to God. <laughs> 
<laughs> that doesn't make sense. Stephen, will you look it up and put it on the they Instagram? Usually they usually don't let shit like that through. Was it in the guest book? <laughs> no, it says obituary. I swear. Um, wow, that's intense. The last line I'll tell you is that according to his friends, Andrew Carter Thornton II died a millionaire. And according to us, the cocaine bear died happy. And that's the real story of Cocaine Bear. There's also a book um, which has the entire story of Thornton's smuggling operation, as far as anyone's aware of it. It's called uh, The Bluegrass Conspiracy by Sally Denton from 1990. So check that out if you're into fucking crazy ass stories. I mean, it's so much cocaine. That's a crazy fucking story. That is nuts. (laughs) Also, like, it's... (laughs) Yeah. The idea that someone drops from the sky and dies in your backyard. I bet he was dead before he hit the ground, though. If he absolutely he had a heart attack, first of all, because, you know, he was probably on some cocaine (laughs) and then he jumps out in a parachute and that parachute doesn't open. At least unconscious. You got to hope, please. Well, also, because that just means he's falling straight down. So, yeah, that's going to. I mean, just this whole it's so extreme it's like it's the most like fucking red bull story of all time it's just nuts 80s 1980s red bull story i bet the movie's going to be sponsored by red bull and you can get really should you should be required to like chug three red bulls before you watch that (laughs) or what about a jolt cola can we bring those back for this movie (laughs) the og or just i love or just some plain old cocaine in a in a nice popcorn bucket i mean that was great should we let that story be our fucking hooray maybe yes i think that was a fucking hooray right hold on epigram a pithy saying or remark expressing (laughs) an idea in a clever and amusing way okay what what that guy read that's not an epigram you're thinking of an an epigram is like (laughs) no i'm saying the epigram Uh was the word used and then it's like the point of battle is to inflict as much yeah. pain in the shortest amount of time. That's not a, an epigram is like, don't let the screen door hit you in the ass on the way out. <laughs> I believe you mean more don't like let that. the screen door hit you where the good Lord split you like that <laughs> or any number of any number epigrams. of Stephen, did you find the obituary? <laughs> yes. So in the Rolling Stone article, it says the district attorney who prosecuted Andrew said, I'm glad his parachute didn't open. I hope he got a hell of a high out of it, out of that. What a dick. I mean, <laughs> unless what he was saying is, I love him so much. He's such my good friend that he oh, got the, the big final high. I bet he didn't even want the parachute to open is what he was saying. Maybe? It just sounds different when you say, I'm glad his parachute. It does. Did. It didn't. <laughs> it does. Very bad. Yeah. Maybe he was like, he got the ultimate high. I'm glad. His, oh, I loved him. I'm glad his parachute didn't open. It's what he would have wanted. That makes that sounds way better. No one wants their parachute not to open. Sorry. Here's an here's the ex- first example of an epigram in Google. Okay. It is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Eleanor Roosevelt. And then she That's- says, "Kill all your enemies with a <laughs> swift Kill them all kick and let God sort them out." <laughs> e- Eleanor Roosevelt. Love Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Loving Sincerely. kisses. Wow. All right. Well, this story is full of inform- in misinformation. Let us know if you know any other uh, Love stories that we should cover full of misinformation. I think that's, that's our specialty. This episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks for listening. You guys are a treat and a treasure. And we appreciate all of your hard work and 
and not so hard work. Yeah, we appreciate it when you relax. Um, we appreciate you at all times, mm. resting, in motion, whatever. Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want a cookie? <laughs>